Well, amen. Aren't you grateful for God's faithfulness in your life? You know, I love the line from that wonderful hymn, pardon for sin and the peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. And I'm thankful for the grace of God uh, in, in our lives. Well, um, one of the most memorable movie lines of all time comes from the 1939 classic, The Wizard of Oz. And I bet even before I say it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. Uh, with three clicks of the heels of her ruby red slippers, Dorothy Gale was back home in Kansas. Now, I imagine some of you wish that you had a pair of shoes like that. And I'll tell you what I'd do if I had a pair of shoes like that. With three clicks of the heels, I'd be saying this. There's no place like a Mexican restaurant. There's no place like a Mexican restaurant. Uh, but home, that word home, it's a word that's been in our vocabulary more than usual here lately. Uh, these past couple of months, all of us have been at home a whole lot more than we're used to. And while I know all of us are rightfully concerned uh, that all of this stay-at-home stuff has done for our economy and our country, perhaps God is more concerned about what our lifestyles up until now have been doing to our families. And so we've grown accustomed to such a fast-paced lifestyle uh, these last many years that all of us don't know what to do with the extra time that we've got on our hands. To be on the go like we've been has undoubtedly taken its toll out uh, on our homes. And you add to this the fact that now every member of the American household has a screen in front of them nearly all day long. And before we know it, folks, we can become strangers to the ones we live with and the ones that we love the most. And so I'm sure you would agree with me that all of us have homework to do. No matter what phase of life you're in, um, homework, it's absolutely essential. The home is important. There is no place like home, and that's true in more ways than we realize. The home is the basic building block of society. Uh, in the scriptures, chronologically, the home is established before the church. Uh, it's in the home that God has designed really an incubator for those whom he has made in his image. And it's during the formative years within the home that children develop a basic understanding of right from wrong, as well as other values that they take with them into their adult years. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that the family uh, the foundation of our nation has been facing some challenges in our times that really are unprecedented. Uh, ours is the generation that is reaping the bitter harvest that has sprung up from seeds that were sown during the sexual revolution, the feminist movement, the battle for the definition of marriage, the growing acceptance of gender fluidity, abortion on demand, the idea that children are a burden, all of these threaten to undo the very fabric that holds American society together. And so if ever there was a time for the Christian home to inspect its foundation, 
then that time certainly is now. Now you know that God's not surprised by the things that happen in the world around us. Uh, He's not surprised by the cultural trends and the way that society moves and that kind of thing. Uh, He calls us as believers to a life of obedience. We're to follow Jesus Christ, knowing full well what kind of world that we live in. And I know it's not easy following Jesus in a world that rejects biblical values and even ridicules the very faith that we hold near and dear as believers. Uh, It's not easy to raise children. It's not easy to establish godly homes in the midst of such a dark spiritual climate. But you know, the Lord never gives us a task without also giving us the means and the resources with which to accomplish that task. Uh, Where the Bible says, uh, train up a child in the way that he should go. I'm also grateful that the Bible says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So if, if you feel overwhelmed as a mom and dad, maybe you've got small kids in the home, maybe you've got adult children, but if you still feel overwhelmed, uh, then you can be encouraged that Jesus said, I have overcome the world. No matter what shape the world around us is in, our faith and our trust is in a savior who reigns supremely. So for reasons such as these and others, I really wanna take a few weeks and examine what the Bible has to say about the home. Now, at some point I am gonna come back to the book of Acts, which I started during this first uh, part of this year. We'll come back to that, but I really believe that this is a wonderful time for us to spend some uh, emphasis on the importance of marriage, the family, the home, And uh, today is Mother's Day, and I am grateful for all you godly ladies. Um, All of the overtime work that you've been putting in, especially since all of us have been home, many of you, in addition to being wife and mother, uh, you're having to play the part of teacher and disciplinarian, spiritual leader. And so we all look up to you with great admiration. But really, for the next six weeks, uh, from Mother's Day uh, to Father's Day, I want us to look at what the Bible has to say about the home. And so if you have your copy of God's word there in front of you, I want you to take it and turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel chapter one. 1 Samuel chapter one. Uh, Irma Bombeck may be a name that some of you are familiar with, but for a long time, she, she was a very successful newspaper columnist. And most of her columns had to do with the home. Uh, some even referred to her as the patron saint of motherhood. Uh, because of the frequent columns that she would post in newspapers all over the country about what it means to be a mom. Uh, She once said this in a column. She said, mothers, you've met the ones today on the greeting cards surrounded by roses, the perfect ones with saintly smiles and the gentleness of fabric softener. But in reality, who is she? She's an enigma who is faster than a speeding bullet. Can we rightfully say that she is life set to poetry? My mother was Genghis Khan in a dress. The whole world stopped when she took a nap. She had a scary quality for knowing what you did when she didn't see it, what you said when she didn't hear it, and what you meant when you didn't say it. A mother has another mysterious quality that also defies explanation. Although your father is often bigger, louder, pays the bills, 
She's the glue that holds the family together. Whether she's a good mother or a difficult mother, you know that when she dies, nothing will ever be the same again. Without her, the family drifts. No one can take the place of the eyes that have seen it all, the hands that reached out and healed, the very presence that brought you comfort and stability just by being there. Yes, those greeting card mothers are nice, but they don't even begin to capture that complex woman who touches our lives in such a way that when she goes, the pain is unbearable. I can't think of any way uh, to put it better. You know, uh, Proverbs 31 says that her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you exceed them all. Charm is deceitful, beauty is fading, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. So this morning, I thought we'd, take a, um, we'd begin by taking a close look at the life of a godly mother who well understood the significance of what it means to devote her children and her home to the Lord. Uh, her name is Hannah, and we find her story in the opening chapters of this book, uh, 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 1 is where I've ho- I hope you've, you've turned to, but I want you to begin reading with me in verse number 1. The Bible says that there was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. Now, Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. This man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? I'm sure that probably didn't bring her much comfort. We men have a knack for not knowing what to say. But verse 9, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. 
Now, Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. And I could say something here about the insensitivity of the priest. The fact that Hannah is much more spiritually minded and burdened than he is. But Hannah answers and says, No, my Lord. I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Hannah, what, a, what an amazing picture of what it means to be a godly wife and mother. Uh, that name Hannah uh, means grace. Hannah's a woman of grace. And not only does her name mean grace, but Hannah is a wonderful picture of grace and motherhood if ever there has been one. And from her life, really in the first couple of chapters in 1 Samuel, I want us to make a few observations. Uh, the first observation that I would make is this. Notice with me the difficulty of her home life. The difficulty of her home life. Uh, this is really expressed in the first seven verses of this text. Now, you know that the book of 1 Samuel, as far as context is concerned, it begins in the setting of the Judges. It was a time in which Israel had no king. Uh, we saw this same thing uh, late last year when we spent some time in the book of Ruth. And if you are familiar with that period of Old Testament history, then you're well aware of the fact that the time of the judges was a dark and confusing time in Israel. And really the last verse of Judges tells us why this is the case. In those days, there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. There was a lack of godly leadership in the, the land. Uh, the priesthood had become corrupt. The law of Moses was ignored. And honestly, when you think about that time, uh, it was a time that was not unlike our own time. Uh, it too was a time of crisis. It was a crisis of leadership, a crisis of morality and ethics. And because there really was no one to fill the leadership gap, the people of God began to drift away from their ethical and theological foundation. And so in the midst of this setting, this dark cultural backdrop, uh, we're introduced to a family. Now this family was not perfect, but this family had tried to serve God nonetheless, even in such confusing, chaotic times. And at the very outset of this story, uh, the man of the house has two wives. And as you could well imagine, this creates all kinds of friction in his home. Uh, 
The Bible says that his wife Peninnah, she has children, but Hannah is barren and broken. And every year, Elkanah would take his family on a trip to the, Shiloh, uh, to the tabernacle there in Shiloh. In fact, when the passage says that it was a yearly pilgrimage that they made, know that the law specified that uh, every man in Israel had to present himself at the tabernacle uh, with his family at least three times out of the year. And so the emphasis then in the text, it's not so much once per year, but that this was their yearly custom. Uh, it's a family who's trying to serve God in the midst of confusing times. And really what should have been a joyful event for Hannah uh, becomes difficult because Peninnah used it as an opportunity to exalt herself and to put Hannah down because of her barrenness. And so on the feast day of sacrifice, uh, the Bible says that Elkanah would distribute portions of meat to his family, but he would give a double portion to Hannah because of the depth of his love for her. And no doubt, uh, her desire to have a son, uh, here in the text, this is reflective of her love for her husband. Because in those days, it was vitally important uh, in that culture to have children who could maintain the family inheritance, uh, perpetuate the family name. And so though she could not conceive, Elkanah loved her, she desperately wants a son. That's evidence of Hannah's love for her husband. Now listen to what one person has said about this. Uh, contrary to popular opinion, the most important characteristic of a godly mother, it's not her relationship with her children. It's her love for her husband. John MacArthur has said this. He says the love between husband and wife is the key to a thriving family. A healthy home life cannot be built exclusively on the parents' love for their children. The properly situated family has marriage at the center. Families shouldn't revolve around the children. Think about this. Uh, what we often communicate to our children through our marital relationship with our spouse, this is something that stays with our kids throughout the rest of their lives. They'll come to learn the most basic lessons of life by watching how we treat one another as husbands and wives. And what our kids come to believe about love, about truth, uh, what sin is, uh, what compassion looks like, forgiveness, all of this, for the most part, they're going to learn by observing our lives under the microscope as husbands and wives. Kind of reminds me of that little song, that all of us were taught when we were little, oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. That's certainly the case. So Elkanah loved Hannah. Hannah loved her husband. They're committed to one another, even though the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. And you'll notice that phrase is mentioned at least twice in this text, uh, once there in verse number five, and then also in verse number six. So ladies, Hannah is a woman who knows what pain is. She's a woman who knows what it means to hurt. Her home life is broken and even somewhat divided. 
Her barrenness is a stigma that gives her rival an opportunity to, to pick at her and to provoke her. And she's married to a man who loves her, but perhaps due to the fact that she was barren, he marries another woman so that he could have a family and perpetuate his legacy and inheritance. And that sounds strange. This had been the example that had been set in Israel in history. Abraham had married uh, both Sarah and Hagar. God had promised that he was going to give Abraham a son through his wife Sarah who had been barren. But you know, they get ahead of God and they take matters into their own hands. And Sarah gives Abraham Hagar as a second wife. Same thing happens. Jacob marries both Rachel and Leah. Leah was able to have kids, Rachel was not. And yet you keep in mind all the while that God's original design for the family involved one man married to one woman for life. This is the design that uh, is, is built into creation itself. We see that in Genesis 1 and 2. It's the same design that Jesus upholds in Matthew chapter 19. And so divorce and bigamy Polygamy, this was never part of God's original plan for humanity. But it came about as a result of sin brought on by Adam's disobedience. Now let me say this, no home is untouched by sin. And that's true for the most godly and grounded homes. Uh, there's only, in human history, there's only been one perfect home and it didn't last very long. So there is no perfect home. Now, I know that some people's homes may look perfect on Instagram, but let me tell you, there is no such thing as a perfect marriage, no such thing as a perfect home, and often the enemy of our souls wages his attack where it matters the most in life. And folks, that's marriage and the family. You know, our homes can have the aroma, the fragrance of heaven, or our homes can have the stench of hell. And the irony of it is that sometimes it happens all within the same day. If your home isn't perfect this morning, then listen, all of this should really give you some hope. Don't give up on God's design for your marriage. Don't give up on God's design for your home simply because things are difficult. In a broken world, we have to fight for our families. But remember, the Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against spiritual wickedness. There's a very real enemy who wants to level his assault on the fabric of our home life. He knows how important marriage is. He knows how important the home is and the family, and that's why his lies are so abundant. So here in this text, you've got a family trying to serve God in difficult times. The man of the house is not perfect, He's perhaps conformed to society around him. He's created a mess in his home, much in the same way that Abraham, his forebearer, had done before him. And he has a wife who's hurting. Hannah's barren. She doesn't understand why. But you see, folks, God is sovereign in the situation. God is in control behind the scenes. He's at work in their lives. And as he often did all throughout Israel's history, God is going to begin solving this dilemma in Hannah's life by giving a baby. A son is going to be born in her life at just the right time 
God's own time. So the difficulty of her home. Number two, notice the second observation, and, and that's this, the desire of Hannah's heart. Seen in contrast to the difficulty of her home is this desire that she has deep within her heart to have a son. And this desire is expressed really in verses 8 through 18. She wanted children. And you know, that's a desire that more than one woman who is listening this morning can identify with. There's nothing quite like the pain of wanting children but not being able to conceive. Hannah knew that pain. And her frustration and her disappointment in that circumstance, it doesn't make her bitter in life. She's praying bitter tears, but that doesn't mean that she's bitter toward God. Uh, instead of driving her away from God, Hannah's pain and her, her disappointment brings her actually closer to God. It doesn't drive her away from him. And her prayer is born of persistent faith. And we learn from Hannah that prayer is not something that is to be sort of rote or perfunctory. Hannah is crying out in desperation in this text. Verse 12 says that she continued praying before the Lord. She's there. They've gone to the tabernacle to worship. And she's pouring out her soul continually before God. That word that's used there translated continued in verse 12 translates a Hebrew word that means to become larger and larger. So the idea is that this burden had just been growing and growing and growing in her heart and in her life. It, becoming more, it uh, became more intense as she's crying out to the Lord. And it's this fiery trial of a barren womb that drives her to her knees in desperation. And she prays, much in the same way with the same persistence that Jesus describes in Luke chapter 18 in a parable that he gave about the persistent widow and the unjust judge. The idea that there was a judge, Jesus tells the story about a judge who didn't fear God, he didn't fear man, but there was a widow who constantly went to this judge to plead her case. And she kept coming back to the judge and kept coming back to the judge and finally the judge gave her her desire and Jesus said the whole point of that is just to illustrate persistence in making our requests known to the Lord. Not because he's reluctant to want to answer our prayers. He's a God who delights in hearing and answering uh, the prayer of faith offered up in the heart and life of his children. But often the reason that God teaches us persistence in faith is because he wants to grow our faith. And he's stretching us and he's using that whole ordeal to make us more like his son, Jesus. So if there's something in your life that you're desperately desiring God to do, it's something that you desperately desire for his glory, something you're asking him in faith. But let me just encourage you, don't give up. Don't become faint, don't become weird. Keep pouring out your soul like Hannah here in this passage. And make your requests known to the Lord. Pray without ceasing. So Hannah's not having to overcome God's reluctance in her life. God's not reluctant as far as her barren condition. The Lord had closed her womb because he fully intended to open it up at just the right moment on his calendar. 
So the faith with which she's praying, notice the vow that she, she determines. Uh, she's going to give this son to God all the days of his life. She says, God, if you would give your servant, and notice she refers to herself as a servant in this passage at least five times, which indicates humility in her heart. If God gave her a son, she determines that she would give that son right back to God. So that means that her desire, it's not selfish here. Uh, she's not concerned about uh, self-preservation or self-glory. Her desire is for the glory of God. Uh, her vow, her subsequent actions prove that she wants a son, not for her own namesake, but because she wants to give that son right back to God for his namesake, for the glory of God. Now think about this. When you think about uh, the narrative of history, when you think about all that we know uh, from this point forward in Israel's future, Samuel, the son, is going to be a kingmaker, but before he was ever born, there was a godly woman praying on his behalf. So the future of the nation rested with the prayer of this godly woman named Hannah. Folks, let me tell you, only eternity will reveal how much has been accomplished through the praying of godly women like Hannah. We tend to want to lay roses down at the feet of those who hold platform positions in the kingdom of God. But let me tell you something. You and I don't really even know who are God's choice servants in life. It could just be that God's choice servant is some godly prayer warrior who's on her face before sunrise every day praying on behalf of our country, praying on behalf of our church, praying on behalf of her family. It's a powerful truth that's illustrated in this text. Now, tragically, Hannah is not going to get much help from her church. Well, Pastor Eli is so spiritually dull and out of touch that he can't even recognize a woman of faith from a woman of wine. He sees her there praying and she's pouring out her soul and she assumes that, he assumes that she's drunk. And so he rebukes her. Her faith and her passion is seen in contrast to his apathy, his judgmental attitude. And later on, uh, Eli is going to be judged by the Lord for having honored his own sons, Hophni and Phinehas, above the Lord. He tolerated their wickedness. They exploited the offerings of God's people and used their office as priest to their own personal advantage. They had their hand in the offering plate. But Hannah, she's going to honor the Lord above her son. But the priest had been honoring his sons above the Lord. And so their two lives are seen in contrast here. So as she explains herself, Eli sends her away with reassurance. And you'll notice in verse 18, the text says that she went her way. She ate. She was no longer sad. In faith, she had cast her burden upon the Lord. She prays. She pours out her soul to the Lord. She gets reassurance from the priest. And now she's going to go back home confident in the fact that God has heard her prayer. She left her frustration at the altar. She committed her way unto God. Now let me ask you this question. When you think about home right now, are there perhaps some burdens on your heart? Issues with which you've been wrestling in your marriage life? in your home life, things that you're deeply burdened over. 
that humanly speaking, there doesn't necessarily seem to be any answers. You know, the Bible says you can cast your burden on the Lord and trust that he will sustain you. And that's what faith does in the life of a believer. Faith rolls its burdens over on the Lord and commits the burden to him in faith. That's why Jesus said, listen, take my yoke upon you. You'll have rest for your weary souls. What it is that's got you burdened, what it is that's got you up late at night, commit that to me, the Lord says. Maybe it's waywardness in the life of a child. Uh, maybe, maybe you're deeply concerned over the spiritual condition of one of your children, praying for their salvation. Maybe they've made some choices in life that are not wise. Maybe some of you godly ladies have an unconverted husband and your home life has been extremely difficult. The burden of uh, rearing your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord has fallen squarely upon your shoulders. Your husband is not concerned about the things of God. He's an unconverted man, and you've got a great burden on your heart. Give it to the Lord. Some of you are grieving this morning because of what your children are missing out on right now in life. Uh, our neighbors, a couple of houses up from us, and a daughter graduate from college, and uh, they, they did what a lot of the colleges and universities are doing. They're having these virtual online ceremonies and that kind of thing, and oh, how disappointed we are for our children who are missing the opportunity of being able to walk across a stage and get a diploma or get a degree. But you know, can I just encourage you with the fact that there is coming a time when all of us are going to walk across the stage and present ourselves to King Jesus. And with all of my heart, I want to hear him say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. And you know, that's really the only ceremony that matters in life. If you've been disappointed by what you've missed out on in life during this season, let me just encourage you with this truth. Your life is in the hands of God. And whatever burden it is that you are carrying, oh, praise God, you can commit that to him in total faith. Cast your anxieties upon him. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain your life. That's what Hannah does. So the difficulty of her home life, uh, the desire of her heart for a son. Notice a third observation in this passage. Uh, it's this, the discipline of her life. We're able to see this from verse 19 on down into verse 23. The Bible says that when it was time to go home, um, early in the morning, Elkanah, his family, they get up, they worship God, they go home. Hannah's going home fully convinced that God is going to work on her behalf. She's committed her burden to God in faith. And it's not too long before God has answered her prayer. Hannah conceives, Hannah gives birth to a son, and the Bible says that she names him Samuel. Now, I love that name, Samuel. Uh, in Hebrew, it, it means heard or asked from God. Uh, it's closely related to that uh, Hebrew name Ishmael, which means God will hear. So Samuel's name is very significant. He's a living answer to the prayer of his mother. And, and he's going to be a reminder that God had heard her prayer, responded to her cry, and had granted her her deepest heart's desire. Now let me tell you, Hannah's going to go to work over the next few years and she's going to devote herself to Samuel's care. 
Now, we didn't read these verses, but if you read on in chapter one, rather than making the next trip to Shiloh, she tells her husband, Elkanah, that she's going to stay behind at home with little Samuel. Verse 22 says, as soon as he's weaned, Hannah says, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. So that means Hannah well understood that her time with her son would be very brief, very short. Those few years would go by quickly. So she determined to make them count. In fact, I read where mothers in that ancient culture often would nurse their children for about three years. So this could be maybe three to four to five years here. But Hannah is caring for Samuel during his most formative years. During those years, he learned to do what every child learns to do. He learned to crawl. He learned to toddle around, learned to walk, learned to talk. But as soon as he was weaned and old enough, Hannah would fulfill her vow and she's going to give him back to God in service at the tabernacle. But in the meantime, she rolls up her sleeves and she goes to work in his life. She determines that she's going to be a fixture in young Samuel's life. She knew that she had important work to accomplish. And that work involved nurturing little Samuel, caring for little Samuel, helping him learn the most basic fundamental truths about life in God's world. It would be Hannah, godly Hannah, godly mother that she was who would teach him about the Lord God. She made her home an atmosphere and an environment where Samuel could learn, where he could grow, where he could be molded and shaped by the truth of God's word. So that means Hannah well understood how important that brief window of time was for her to make an investment in his life that would have eternal dividends. In Proverbs 22, in verse number six, the Bible says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. I mean, there's a sobering truth in these verses. For those of us who are parents who still have children in the home. Guys, our time in their lives is very, very brief. And what we do with it is of utmost importance. God help us to prioritize the things in life and eternity which matter the most. I know you want your, your kids to succeed. I know you want them to have a successful career. I know you want them to go to college and get that degree. And all of that's good. I know that you want them to do their best uh, on the basketball court or the football field or the soccer field. And all of that's good and has its time and place. But may we not forget that which matters most and it's the spiritual formation of their lives. And that is not something that you can outsource to the student pastor. It is not something you can outsource to the children's ministry director. It is not something that you can outsource to me as your pastor. You can't outsource it to the church. You've got to take the bull by your own, uh, the, the, the bull's horns by your own two hands and you've got to handle it. You've got to do it. And you only have a brief window of time to do it. 
And maybe perhaps that's what God is doing during these days where we've not been able to meet together as a church and our kids' ministry hallways have been strangely silent for two months and our student room has been strangely silent and empty for two months. It's that God is reinforcing the principle to mom and dad that the home is where it's at. The home is where it happens. And when our children come to know and learn about the God of heaven, they will largely, it will largely come from what they see in our lives. Not so much what I tell them, but what I do before they're watching eyes. And that's why it's so critical. You have a personal experience with God. That's why it's important that you have a personal, intimate knowledge with God. Not just something that you're parroting back that you've heard, but something that you personally emulate, something that you have personally received by faith, a life that's been converted to faith in Jesus Christ and deep, abiding, experiential knowledge of the God of heaven. And it's only that kind of, you'll, only then will you have something to pass on to them. If you don't have a real heart of faith, if it's just a head full of facts, then you really have nothing to pass on. You might have something by way of a framework, a religious system, something that might curb their little sinful appetites, but let me tell you, if they don't see a life of faith in Jesus Christ in you, modeled in your life, if that's not important to you, if Christ is not important, if he's not, not, just, not just on your list, but, but he's the list, he's at the top, he's everything to you, if that's not the case, then they're going to learn that something else is important in life rather than the Lord God. So let me ask you this question, moms and dads. Are you raising sons and daughters with this desire and this understanding that one day they're going to stand before the Lord? Because that's what Hannah's doing here. She's making the most of the time that she has because she knows the time is coming when she is going to have to present Samuel to the Lord. Now, there's one final observation that I want you to see, and it's simply this. The dedication of her child. The dedication of her child. Verses 24 through 28. Again, we didn't read these verses, but, but Hannah is more than true to her word. At the appropriate time, she takes little Samuel back to Shiloh, and she commits him there to the Lord in total faith and total trust but not before she had made a major spiritual investment in his life, one that he's going to take on into his years, even as a grown man and a leader. You know, one of the biggest challenges that we face is this necessity of giving our kids back to the God who gave them to begin with. You know, the Bible says we're to raise up our children in the nurture and the instruction of the Lord. But, but ultimately, we've got to understand that they don't belong to us. They've been entrusted to us. That means we're stewards, just like everything else in the Christian life. I'm an owner of nothing, but a steward of everything. And see, let me tell you, that's, that's why, uh, just take for example, giving is so important. The person who understands that everything that they have in their possession by way of material resources, that's why often they're the most generous because they realize it all belongs to God to begin with and so it's no pain to them. It's a joy rather to be able to give. Same thing ought to be true for our sons and daughters. We realize that ultimately we don't own them 
but rather we've been entrusted with them. We're stewards of their little lives and the time is coming when we've got to give them back to God. That means Allie and Andrew are not my possessions. They're not Anita's possessions. They belong to Jesus Christ. And as their parents, Anita and I are merely stewards of their little lives for a brief, brief time. And now with a teenager in my home, that truth comes to bear on my heart now more than ever before. And I realize many of you, you've raised sons and daughters. Now you get to have grandkids and the joy of grandchildren is they get to come. But man, you get to see them go too when you're ready for them to go. A.W. Tozer, listen to this. He said, everything in life that we commit to God is really safe. But everything which we refuse to commit to him is never safe. I've never lost anything that I've given to God. That's true whether it be money. It's true whether it be my time, the concerns that I have in life, my children, Hannah longed for a son. She'd agonized in prayer for a son. And now that she had been blessed with Samuel, she's giving him back to the Lord. And she could do that, my friend, because ultimately she knew that she wasn't losing anything at all. <laughs> but the more we hold on to things, the tighter our grip selfishly becomes, the greater the likelihood of loss. And I don't want my God to have to Pry my fingers off of the things in life that I've idolized and put before him. There are a lot of moms and dads who worship at the shrine of their children. But what are you going to do when they're not there? Where will your identity come from when they're no longer in your home? But when you've dedicated to something to God, when you've dedicated, whatever it be, whether it be a job, whether it be your house, whether it be something much more precious like your kids, folks, you never really lose it. Rather, you've committed it to him for his safekeeping, for his watchful care. Hannah's come to this point in her life as a mom. She, she says, Lord, your will for my, for my Samuel's life, your will be done, not my own. It's almost as if she's taken a blank sheet of paper. She's written Samuel's name at the top of it. And then she's handed that sheet of paper over to God for him to do whatever he wants to do with it. Often we're tempted to want to fill in those details ourselves where our kids go to school, what they choose to do with their lives, who they choose to marry. But giving your children to God means you write their name on a blank sheet of paper and then you give that paper to God and you let him fill in those important details. So, Hannah, what a godly woman, what a godly mother. When we first meet her, Israel's in desperate need of a leader. But Hannah will become the woman of God who's used by God to help shape the man of God. Who is it that's been pouring into your life behind the scenes? You think you're wasting your time, mom, shedding tears, crying out 
on behalf of your son or your daughter, be encouraged by the fact that God hears and answers prayer, but he does it in his own time. Oh, there's some valuable lessons to learn from this story, not the least of which is that God hears and answers the prayer of faith in his own time. Whatever that burden is in your heart, whether it be for your kids or whatever, commit that to the Lord and trust that he's going to answer in his own time. Another lesson that I learned from Hannah's life is that we parents only have a short window of time to shape the spiritual understanding of our kids. May we seize the opportunity of a lifetime in the lifetime of the opportunity. And Hannah also teaches me that I never really lose what I place in the hands of God. One of the greatest preachers alive today one of the greatest Bible expositors, I believe, is Alistair Begg. I love listening to Alistair Begg preach. But ladies, let me, let me just read something to you that Alistair Begg wrote. He said, when the sun sets on our earthly journey and our children reflect upon our lives, their memories will not be stirred by our qualifications, our financial status, our educational stature. They'll not be preoccupied with the furniture we left them, the jewelry they now wear, or the material things we've been able to leave behind. What will linger in their memory and cause them to smile or move them to tears will all have to do with the fact that we gave ourselves to them. And it's as a mother that your children will remember you most of all. Your tender sympathy, your compassion in their disappointments, your radiance even when half hidden through mist of tears, your commitment even in the evenings of long unexplained sighs. It won't be that you managed to do it all perfectly, nor even that you did so consistently but know this, deep in their spirits, they will be able to say, I was everything to my mom. She loved me to the point of fatigue. She listened when no one else would. She advised with my best interest at heart. And she presented Christ to me and me to Christ. Isn't that a great thought? Will we present Christ to our kids? And will we present our kids to Christ? Mom or dad, if you don't know Jesus today, the greatest legacy you could ever leave behind for your children is a legacy of faith, one that trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about a list of do's and don'ts and all that kind of thing. I'm talking about a personal, experiential knowledge of God that comes through a deep and personal relationship with His Son. If you've never been saved today, can I just encourage you right there where you are, would you bow with me? And in faith, would you just simply pray, perhaps something along these lines, Lord God, I confess my sin today. 
Left to myself, I've made a failure of my life and my home. I'm not a perfect man or woman. I've broken your law. But I believe that Christ died for me. I believe that Christ was condemned on a cross so that I could be forgiven of my sin. And I believe that he rose again from the dead. And I confess him today as my Savior and Lord. Our Father and our God, we are so thankful, Lord, for our homes. And during this season, oh God, you've been at work in my heart, reminding me of what matters the most. It's not the American economy. It's not the American dream. It's not who's in the White House. It's not whether or not even the church has opened up. God, the most important thing in life is the glory of God. Marriages and homes that are devoted to God. None of us are perfect, Lord, even those who are called to lead the flock. Yeah, I'm a shepherd that leads a flock, but God, I'm also a sheep in your fold. Thank you. Lord, those who have decisions to make today, whatever that may be, whether it be repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, salvation, baptism, getting down on their face right now, wherever they are, and dedicating their home to God, giving their children to God. Oh, Lord God, would you move in our hearts and lives for Jesus' sake. And in his name I pray, amen.